Today on the Matt Wall Show, uh, a bill in Georgia that just became law now makes it illegal to abort a baby after the heartbeat can be detected. The left is reacting to this wonderful law uh, about as calmly as you might expect, including a leftist on CNN yesterday who claimed that an unborn baby is not a human being. So we will analyze that rather insane claim today. Also, what is soligamy? I will explain. And I want to talk about uh, an important lesson that I recently learned about fatherhood. We'll talk about that and other things today on The Matt Walsh Show. Well, we begin with great news. The uh, governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, courageously signed a bill into law yesterday that outlaws all abortion uh, after the heartbeat can be detected. So that, that takes care of a great number of abortions, not all of them, but many of them. And there have been boycott threats and, and things from Hollywood and, and other uh, organizations and industries saying that they're going to boycott the state if this bill is signed into law. But Kemp made it clear that he's not going to be intimidated and that he's uh, going to follow through on his pro-life convictions anyway. So he deserves to be commended for that. And uh, all of the pro-life legislators down there in, in Georgia deserve to be commended. Now, the court, of course, the left is having conniption fits over this, as you would expect. I'm not going to bother going through and giving you examples of the things that they're saying. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, is having a tantrum about it and all the usual suspects. Doesn't, doesn't, I'm not going to go through that because it doesn't really matter. And uh, pro-aborts, you know, they have two or three arguments at their disposal and a whole bunch of straw men and they just shout them incessantly. It's the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and, and, and they keep shouting them. No matter how often you engage with their points and debunk the points, it doesn't matter. They'll just keep going back to the well over and over and over again. So at a certain point, it's like, what's, what's, what reason is there even to get into the specifics of what their arguments are? You already know what their arguments are. Oh, it's a bunch of men that are trying to control women's bodies and blah, blah, blah. Um, I will just say one thing, though. There will, uh, you know, and backing up for a second, the thing is that with the pro boards who use these straw men arguments of, oh, it's men trying to control women, you're trying to control women's bodies, uh, you know, all the different straw men. You, you, if you, you, can't be against, you can't be against abortion if you're not willing to adopt all of the unwanted babies. We talked about that a few days ago. So basically... You're not allowed to be opposed to somebody's murder unless you are able to personally feed and clothe those people. So, which means that you're not allowed to be opposed to almost everyone's murder because you personally probably don't have the ability to clothe and feed seven billion people, right? Uh, but all these, all these strawmen. The thing is, if the person who makes the, these strawmen arguments, the reason why they're using straw men is that they are intellectually lazy non-thinkers. And if you're an intellectually lazy non-thinker, it's, you really can't be engaged with, uh, because if you're not willing to think, if you're not willing to think beyond claiming that the pro-life movement is a patriarchal conspiracy, if that's the most you're willing to think, if you're not willing to engage your mind and really try to understand, okay, why is it Maybe it's not just that these are a bunch of men who are trying to control women. Could there be some other reason, possibly, why someone might be against abortion? If you're not willing to think like that or to think at all, 
then there's, there's no conversation can be had. You have to be willing to turn on your brain first. Um, but I, there's, there's one thing, one thought I want to share. There will now, it's a very, very simple concept here. There will, there will now be children born in Georgia who otherwise would not have been born. Right. Uh, this law will indeed prevent many women from getting abortions. If, if, it, if it was not going to prevent many women from getting abortions, then pro-abortion people wouldn't be freaking out about it. They try to have it both ways here. They'll say, on one hand, the law is terrible because it's going to prevent all these women from getting abortions. And then on the other hand, they'll say it's not going to prevent anyone because now they'll go to the back alley and they'll get back alley abortions. So they try to have it both ways. But they know that, yes, it will prevent not every woman, but it will prevent a significant number of women from getting abortions. All right, so what does that mean? Well, it means that in, say, a year's time or two years' time, there will be a number of, I think the law goes into effect in 2020, actually, so in, let's say, three years' time or four years' time, there will be a number of babies in Georgia, living, born babies, who would not be there, would not exist, if not for this law. So if you're against this law, are you willing to look at a baby born in Georgia in the year 2021 and say he shouldn't exist? It would be better if he did not exist. Are you willing to do that? I'm not. And that's that's the point here. The, the terrible dystopian handmaid's tale result of this Georgia law is that there will be more babies. That's it. That's the result. Okay, that's the dystopia that we are heading into. It's a, a world where there are a, a few more babies, babies that are allowed to live rather than being killed. Now, the left can mourn over that if they want. They can treat it like some sort of catastrophe. But, you know, I, I'm not going to because I love babies. I, I think babies are awesome. I love life. I think life is awesome. Uh, and that's how I live. I, I can't imagine living other way, any other way. I can't imagine being the sort of person who would get upset at the idea of more babies being born. I mean, imagine being that kind of person. It's incredible. All right, I said I wasn't going to bother uh, going over the left's reaction to this law, but I, I do have to play one clip for you. Just one clip. Uh, here is a debate between Christine Quinn and Rick Santorum on CNN last night. Horrible tales. I answered it numerous times. When a, when a woman gets pregnant, that is not a human being inside of her. It's part of her body. And this is about a woman having full agency and control of her body and making decisions about her body and what is part of her body with medical professionals. Those so are the so facts, the and that is, is the law of chattel. the land. Listen, and they can do whatever this, they want look, to that. This you is can, about a woman's so they body. Can name the baby. Listen, you can they can do whatever the, they the want. They can torture the baby. The, 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 the debate is fine. You're, you're, you're so fine. Guys, desperate here. You're the, so desperate no, here. No, no, no. Listen, I'm bringing up fake stories. I'm just asking questions. You're not. You're asking provocative things that are trying to make people angry about what's done, and that's okay. All I'm saying is, 
You guys go too far when you pervert the facts. We have the president of the United States saying that a baby is born at the end of full term, swaddled in a blanket, and then to decide whether or not to execute it. So Chris Cuomo says uh, you guys pervert the facts. And and who is he referring to? Well, he's referring to pro-lifers, of course. You, you guys are pervert. You guys are perverting the fact. Of course, meanwhile, a guest on his show just said seconds earlier that an unborn baby is not a human being. Isn't a human being. Well, if that's the case, then, I mean, my God, my, my wife is pregnant. Um, and I, you know, I, I thought she was pregnant with a baby this whole time. I thought she had a baby in her womb this whole time. Apparently, it's a space alien. I, you know, I had, I had no idea. I, I mean, I'm not mad that it's a space alien. I, I, it could be kind of cool to have a space alien around the house. But I think the doctor should have mentioned that at the ultrasound. That's all I'm saying. You know, the doctor should have said, hey, by the way, this is a parasitic alien infestation, not a pregnancy. Um, I feel like that's the kind of disclosure that doctors should make. Or the other possibility is, of course, that my wife is is actually pregnant with a human and that every pregnant woman in history has been pregnant with a human. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's probably it. I think, yeah, I think that's I think that's got to be it. this is such a, speaking of bad arguments, okay, it's one thing to claim that the unborn human, the unborn baby, uh, is human but is not a person. Okay, that's a stupid argument too, and we've talked about that, we've talked about how to address that. But at least with that argument, you're pretending to have some kind of respect for the basic biological facts here. And you realize that you can't deny that it's a human, so instead you're trying to parse, make some distinction between human and person. You're playing kind of a grammatical game, a word game. Uh, that's a bad argument, but to just go full gusto here and say it's not, e- it's not even a human, well, that's, I mean, <laughs> there is no credible scientist in the world who will endorse that idea. I don't care how liberal they are, how pro-abortion they are, you will not find a single credible, sane uh, scientist who will say, yeah, you're right, not a human being. There are two ways to know that it's a human being, okay? Here, here's, here's the spoiler alert. Number one, DNA. It has human DNA that makes it a human. Number two, you don't even need to do a DNA test here because um, we know it's a human because... It was created by two humans. So I guess to give Christine Quinn a little bit of a birds and bees lecture here, you know, okay, because I guess her parents never did. You see, when, uh, when a man and a woman love each other and uh, they get together, they, they have sexual relations, um, and then uh, a, a, a pregnancy occurs, well, that pregnancy is going to be another human. It's not going to be a carrot or a moose or a chair or the color blue. You know, it, it, it's going to be a, a human because that's two humans in the midst of the sexual act and the procreative act can only create another human. You know, so I, I don't know how else to explain this. Um, 
I don't know. Are you still confused, Christine Quinn? I mean, I don't know how else to, it's just two, that's all that two people can do. They can only create other people. They can't create any other kind of thing. Um, I, I know that, that's, that's, as, that's as basic as I can get. It's pretty remedial here. You say, oh, it's a part of the woman's body. Yeah, but it's not, though. You see, except the, the problem with that argument is that it's completely stupid. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's just not part of the woman's body. I mean, it's not. It's, it's, it is entirely different bodies. A part, uh, let's, my arm is a part of my body. Okay? So you see, look at my arm here. This is my arm. Um, uh, it's, it's called an arm. Uh, it's, it's my left arm, to be specific. And it's a part of my body. Now, here's one of the ways that you know it's a part of my body. It's that um, this arm will never be anything but an arm. You see? Uh, it, 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 you could cut it off, and then I just won't have an arm anymore. But if you were to cut off my arm, and please don't, but if you did, and my arm was just laying there on the floor, it's not going to turn into a camel. Uh, or a cat, it, it won't. It won't turn into anything. It just, it's just going to be. It just, it will decay. It's just an arm, right? It, and when it's connected to my body, it will, it will remain an arm forever. It will never become anything else. So, if there is a part of your body that magically, after nine months, turns into a whole new person, well, that's a pretty good indication that that part of your body was never a part of your body. You see, uh, just a little, little basic science for, for you guys today. Um, hopefully I was able to clear that up for Christine Quinn. All right, let's stay in the realm, uh, the pro-life realm here for a moment. Uh, Brian Sims, the Democratic rep in Pennsylvania who's been harassing and bullying pro-lifers and who sparked our big rally that we're going to have down there, uh, up there for me, in Pennsylvania on Friday, 1144 Locust Street at 11 a.m. That's where we're all going to be. Um, but Brian Sims yesterday, he recorded what has been described as an apology, but it's an interesting apology because it's missing something. And I want you to watch this and watch very closely. See if you can spot what's missing. Hi, everyone. Representative Brian Sims here, and I'm actually up in our Capitol for this week's legislative session, but I stepped off the floor for a moment because I've received a lot of feedback about a video I posted last week, and I want to provide some background. You see, I've lived across the street or next door to this particular Planned Parenthood, one of the most heavily protested Planned Parenthoods in America for the last 15 years. I've seen men and women and teens try to go there for routine health care, for checkups, for pap smears, for breast exams, for STD screenings, and yes, for abortions. In fact, it's where I even treat for my own life-saving PrEP medication, and I'm grateful for the services that they provide. I've also spent the last seven years serving as a volunteer patient escort at this Planned Parenthood, and I have seen firsthand the insults, the slurs, the attacks, and the racism that those protesters aim at mostly young girls going there for clinical care, care that those of us on the outside can never understand, and last week was no different. What I should have shown you in that video was protesters gathered together to pray at, not to silently pray for, people coming in and out of Planned Parenthood as they intercepted them and harassed them. In my years with Planned Parenthood, I've seen women and girls circle that block two, three, four times before finally driving away because they know that they weren't going to get in because of those protesters. 
but as a Planned Parenthood volunteer and as a supporter, I fully understand, respect, and appreciate the non-engagement policy that they have, and I would never want to do anything that interfered with the care that they're providing to their patients. As an activist and an advocate, I know why pushing back against harassment and discrimination are a must, even when they're uncomfortable. But last week, I wasn't a patient escort. I was a neighbor and a concerned citizen, and I was aggressive. I know that two wrongs don't make a right, and I can do better, and I will do better for the women of Pennsylvania. Yeah, the, the missing thing, the thing that's missing from this apology is an apology. Um, that's what's missing. He never once apologizes. I don't know how it is that this has been described as an apology. He never says, I'm sorry, or I apologize. Never says those words. He never expresses any anything that even comes close to resembling an apology. Um, in fact, he, he doubles down. He continues to smear pro-lifers or schmear them, as he might say. And uh, so this, this is not just a classic non-apology apology. See, a non-apology apology is when you say something like, um, I, I, I'm sorry if you were offended or, you know, something like that. But this is not even that. This is just another attack on pro-lifers. This, this is him continuing the schmear campaign. This is him continuing to, um, to uh, just him doubling down on, on what he initially did. He's, he's justifying it. The only little bit of regret he expresses is for the inconvenience he's caused Planned Parenthood. That's, there's a little tinge of regret, and it's for that. But that's it. So, Brian, um, we're still coming. Uh, 11 a.m. on Friday, 1144 Locust Street. We'll be there, and um, I really hope to see you there. Though I tend to doubt that I will. All right, so Megan McCain was on Seth Meyers last night. Things got a little bit testy. Uh, watch a little bit of this clip. I want to ask uh, uh, about Ilhan Omar, Congresswoman from uh, uh, Minnesota. You know, she uh, was in a situation, you were uh, very vocal about some of her tweets, uh, people were upset, thought it was uh, anti-Semitic language. She has since uh, unequivocally apologized for them. And then after that, uh, there was this tragic synagogue shooting in California. And you once again sort of, on a Sunday show, a uh, Sunday news show, uh, brought up her tweets again in the context of that shooting. Um, on George Stephanopoulos. On George Stephanopoulos, yeah. Um, and I just wonder, because I do think it's, it's fairly dangerous, and, and you brought it up after... Congress uh, uh, woman uh, Omar had also had some death threats against her. Do you think, you know, she's obviously uh, now stated she needs to be more careful with her language. Don't you think other people who talk about her need to be a little bit more thoughtful as well? Or do you stand by those comments of tying her to this, her rhetoric to the synagogue shooting? I don't think I tied her to it in particular. I think that I'm calling out what I see as anti-Semitic language and when you're talking about But even um, after, hypnotic... you called it out after she'd apologized for it. I do want to establish um, the timeline. I don't, I think that Democrats are, are hedging on this and I think it's very dangerous and I think Chuck Schumer and I are in alignment about Israel's stance in, in geopolitical politics. I think it's of the utmost importance and I think she is bringing her party to the extreme extremism on this and I think we have to look to Europe and what's happening over there and that they're, you know, in, in the British politics, anti-Semitism is very common and I see it happening over there and I worry about it happening over here. I stand by every single thing I said. And if that makes me unpopular in this room or in front of you, so be it. Um, well, I don't. 
See, that's a weird thing that you would take the position of trying to be unpopular. Here I am trying to, you know, find the common ground on this because I do think one of the, I think we could both Were agree. Were you bothered by her language about 9-11? Um, I thought it was taken out of context. And I think if you watch that whole Would you speech, give President Trump the same, same leverage uh, if he had said the same thing? Uh, well, I would say that Donald Trump is certainly in no position to criticize her language on 9-11 based on the things that he said about 9-11, right? So this is a comedy show, folks. This is, this is comedy. Now, conservatives are, are making a thing out of this exchange between Seth Meyers and Meghan McCain because of Meyers' political bias. And they're saying, oh, he's, you know, he's a le left-wing bias and all that. And that's true. But I'm a lot more concerned about the fact that this is late-night comedy, but it isn't funny. You know, I'm okay with a comedian being a left-winger. So maybe that's where I depart from some other conservatives out there where, you know, it, it, it doesn't upset me that these comedians are all liberal. I'm fine with that. Um, a, a liberal person theoretically can still be funny. And if they're funny, they're funny. That's fine. As long as they're funny. The trouble, though, it, with these partisan hacks on late night is that they aren't funny. They're not even trying to be funny. And that's the un unforgivable sin for a comedian, isn't it? To not be funny. It's like... You know, I, I don't care if my plumber is a liberal so long as he's good at fixing my plumbing. If he can't do that, then he's sort of worthless as a plumber. And if he can't fix my plumbing and he delivers left-wing lectures to me, then that's, that's insult to injury. Why is it that comedy has died um, in the Trump era? Why is it that all these, you know, these late-night shows were never great, but uh, they did used to be at least entertaining, you know, amusing. Um, and they're not even that anymore. And, and why is that? I think a lot of it goes into, um, well, there's, there's a lot that goes into it, but one answer certainly is that these guys really, really hate Donald Trump, as I'm sure you've noticed. And you can't really be funny about something if you hate it. In, in order to make funny jokes about something or someone, you have to have some kind of affection for the target of your humor. Because if you have some kind of affection for it, then, then you can relate to it. And if you can relate to it, then you can understand it. And, and, and in order to be funny, you need to understand what you're making jokes about. Because that's a fundamental part of wit. Um, and so there's that's the problem is that they, they, they absolutely hate Donald Trump um, with a blind hatred. And by extension, they hate his supporters. They hate conservatives. They hate all these people. And so they, they just can't be funny. I mean, they can, they can uh, sneer and they can mock, but they can't go beyond that because of their hatred. Um, as it turns out, you know, hatred and Hatred and comedy really don't mix, as it turns out. Speaking of comedy, I've been wanting to talk about this for a few days. Um, there's a, an article in the Daily Wire about a woman who married herself. And this is, uh, goes back to a, an article originally in The Telegraph about a 42-year-old woman who was talking about the best, the best day of her life is when she married herself. Um, it says in the reading from the Daily Wire, it says, Melissa Denton, a two-time divorcee, was uh, with two children, writes, 
The idea to marry myself came to me in January last, last year when I was at work one day. Three weeks before, on Christmas Eve, uh, I had received a text message from my boyfriend of five and a half years. I can't do this anymore. It's over, it said. It was devastating and left me in a funk, unable to eat, smile, or sleep. Seizing upon the idea of marrying herself, Denton recalls a TV interview with Sophie Tanner, who had married herself in May, 15, on, in May 2015. Denton writes, I was so down and knew that I needed to learn to love myself before I'd be able to attract the right people into my life. For years, I had poured myself into relationships after relationship, losing myself in the process, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there was a, she got a ring for herself. She, uh, there was a, a wedding date. And she invited her friends and family. They had a, they had a DJ, a, li- a live band, karaoke, get the, a huge vegan fest. I know you're shocked by that. This woman's a vegan. I know that surprises you. Um, and people actually came out to celebrate this woman's marriage to herself, including some ex-boyfriends also came, apparently. Now, I mean, obviously this is crazy. And it does show, again, that, you know, this is someone who is completely self-absorbed, literally in love with themselves, and her marriages and relationships aren't working out. So this goes back to that thing of if you find that your relationships never work and that you've got a whole string of ex-boyfriends and then a whole string of ex-husbands, at a certain point, you probably need to ask yourself, what is the common denominator? Like in every one of these failed relationships, there's one common thread that binds them all together. What is that? Oh yeah, it's me. I'm the thing that I am the, the, the common ingredient in all of these failed relationships. Maybe there's something wrong with me. And maybe that thing is, among probably other things, Self-absorption. That could be it. You know, she mentions there, uh, you have to learn to love yourself before you can love other people. That is such utter BS. Of all the modernist cliches, that might, that might actually be the worst. Because it's not only stupid, but it's harmful. I mean, this idea you have, you have to, you have to work, work on loving yourself before you can love other people. First of all, what does it mean to work on loving yourself? Do you, what do you, so you just sit, can I just sit here at the table and just work on loving myself? What do I do? Just think, try to think happy thoughts. Okay, I'm going to love myself. Let me think about it. Hmm. Let me see. Let me see if I can generate some love for myself. What does that even mean? How, how do you do that? Or, or do you have to go and have a, and marry yourself and have this whole big pageant? Um, the whole idea, the whole concept is meaningless. And aside from that, you've got to see the problem with tying your, your feelings about yourself to your ability to love other people. Because then what, what, what if you manage somehow to love yourself, at least for the, for the time being? Um, and then you go out and you get married and you have kids. Well, what happens on the days when you wake up, and these days will come, where you'll wake up feeling uh, not so great about yourself? There are going to be days where you're a little bit down in the dumps. 
There are going to be days when, when, when you don't love yourself quite as much. So what are you going to say to your spouse and kids? Oh, sorry, guys. I, I can't love you today because I, I, I can't love you today because I'm just not feeling great about myself. No, love is an act of will. It's a choice that you make. And you can and should make that choice regardless of how you feel about yourself. So I love my wife and kids all the time. I, I don't. I don't even like myself sometimes. I mean, I, 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 there, there are, it's, my feelings about myself go up and down. It's not, it's not a steady thing. I think we're all like that, right? You're not going to feel great about yourself all the time, every day. Um, and you shouldn't try every day to conjure those feelings about yourself. You know, you know the best thing to do? It's just to stop thinking about yourself. Put that to the side. And focus on other people. Focus on the things outside of you. Focus on the external realities. If you're not feeling great about yourself, well, that's, that is a, a perfect time to go and, and focus on loving, especially focus on loving your wife, loving your husband, your kids. Um, and then maybe in the process of going through the acts and making the choice of loving other people, maybe in the midst of that, you'll find yourself feeling better about yourself. You see, so the, the love for yourself becomes more of a byproduct of your love for other people, not the starting point. All right. Um, finally, before we answer some emails, um, I had a thought I wanted to share. Speaking of families and, and, and loving, you know, your, your family and all that good stuff. Uh, I just thought I want to share, you know, I took my five-year-old son fishing a couple of days ago and we went in the late afternoon. We stayed out until dark. Uh, we didn't catch anything. Neither of us did. And that's partly my fault because usually when I take my kids fishing, which I've done in the past, I'll, I'll have them, they'll be using a bobber with a, you know, a little night crawler, like a little worm. You just you cast it out there. You you let you let it sit until a little panfish or something comes and jumps on the hook. And uh, it's easy to catch fish that way. You catch a lot of little small fish that way. But this time I thought I want to teach my boy real fishing. So I had him using an adult-sized rod, plastic lures, um, the kind of lure where you cast it out, you reel it back in. You have to work the rod a little bit and try to put some action in the lure and try to get fish attracted to it. And that's how you catch bass. That's how you catch good-sized bass. But you're ruling out the tiny fish, which means that there's a chance that you won't catch anything at all. Whereas if you had used the bobber and everything, you could have caught some small fish. Anyway, that's now I'm getting off into fishing. That's not really the point. The point is he had a great time. Uh, we both did, even though we didn't catch anything. So it didn't matter that we didn't catch anything. Um, afterwards, we went and got some pizza. I got him home way past his bedtime. But on the way home, um, as we were driving, uh, my son told me that he wants to be a great fisherman uh, like me one day. He wants to be a great fisherman like daddy one day is what he said. And when he said that, you know, I, I, I said, oh, thanks, buddy. You'll get there one day. And in my head, though, I was kind of laughing because I didn't catch a single thing all day. I mean, being a fisherman like me is not a high bar to get over. 
Uh, so I thought it was funny that he was, that after witnessing me get goose egged like that for three hours, he was thinking, oh, I want to be a great, I want to be great at fishing like that. But then as I thought more about it, um, I realized that there's something kind of profound about what my son said there. Because as dads, our sons idolize us. They admire everything about us, uh, even our failures. So my son was watching me fail at fishing, but that's not what he saw. You know, that's not what he was focused on. He was thinking about, all he was thinking about is that he he wants to be just like me um, and do what I do. And I think that's a really good reason to take this fatherhood job seriously, you know, because our sons are watching us like hawks all the time. They're picking up lessons every day even when we aren't trying to teach them lessons. And that's a humbling thought. And it's kind of scary because I start to think to myself, well, okay, if, if, he, if he was watching me suck at fishing and uh, he took a few bad fish, fishing pointers from me accidentally, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, but what about other moments in my life where I, you know, I'm, I'm displaying certain more serious flaws um, and he's watching that and picking up on that? If he sees me lose my temper or something like that, um, or have, or be impatient. Well, he's going to be watching that too and thinking, I want to be just like daddy. Thinking, well, that's, that's what men do. That's what it means to be. I want to be a man. Uh, and that's what a man does. So I should be like that. So it's a humbling thought. And like I said, a scary thought. Um, but also, also beautiful when you think about it, that we have, you know, um, that kind of responsibility. And that we have people in our lives who admire us and love us that much and look up to us. Um, so it's, a, it's an incredible responsibility. One other thing about fishing with my son that I was thinking about is I, I noticed something else on a, on a slightly different note. You know, my son has a lot of trouble paying attention. He's very rambunctious, very energetic. He struggles with the ABCs and one, two, threes and all that um, because he can't sit still and pay attention for very long. But I took him out to the lake and he worked on his casting for three hours. I mean, he must have made a hundred casts and he, he stayed focused on, he worked at it, he's focused. Um, and so we, we say about our boys a lot of the time that they can't pay attention, they can't focus. We use these words like I just used, but I think they can. They just pay attention to different sorts of things. And they can learn, they just learn differently. They're interested in different things. They have a different style of learning. Now, you might say that it's more important for him to pay attention to the ABCs and 123s than it is for him to learn about fishing. But is it really? I mean, fishing is a useful skill, and, and he's learning other things at the same time. Uh, I taught him about bass beds, where, where the mommy bass lay their eggs. We talked about the different kinds of things that fish eat. Um, and how you change the color of the lore depending on the, the clarity of the water, depending on the time of day, and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we talked about how bass like to be around structures like stumps and big rocks and laid down trees. Uh, we talked about how they come up into the shallows when it gets cooler and there's, and, and there's less light. Um, and so he, he learned a lot. He, he had a whole biology lesson right there at the lake, and he learned a skill at the same time. So if I tried to sit him down on a chair and just lecture him about fish, um, he would not have been able to absorb anything I said. But take him out to the lake, 
let him see, let him touch, let him move around, let him explore, let him do something while he's learning. And, uh, and, and what do you know? He learns. And I think it's probably that, that way for a lot, of, a lot of young boys. A lot of young boys who have been consigned to the label of learning disabled or, or whatever else. Um, no, they can learn. They just don't learn like that. They learn differently. And that's okay. All right, let's look at a couple of emails now. Um, this is from Jennifer at mattwalshow at gmail.com. Mattwalshow at gmail.com. This is from Jennifer. As an OBGYN resident, I have been involved in the delivery of over 400 babies, and I can only recall maybe two dozen couples who didn't know the gender of their baby beforehand. In my experience, the surprise deliveries are way more fun and emotionally powerful than the ones where the parents already know what they're going to have. I absolutely intend for my future pregnancies to be surprises. Are you and your wife going to find out your gender, uh, find out the gender of your new baby before his or her birth, or do you want it to be a surprise? Did you know the genders of your other kids beforehand? I'd be willing to bet you've never hosted a gender reveal party, but I'm curious to know your thoughts on that as well. Um, Yeah, your bet is a safe one. I have never done a gender reveal party, and I would never do one or attend one. I find the whole concept mystifying, honestly. I mean, I couldn't possibly care less about the gender of any child um, that any of my friends or family might be having. And it's not that I don't care about their kids. It's just I don't have, like, I don't have a preference for what gender uh, my sister has. So it's not, I, I, I just, I don't get it. I'm happy for them that they're having a kid, but I'm supposed to go to a party and be thrilled about whatever gender it is. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense. If it's a girl, great. If it's a boy, great. But at a, at a gender reveal party, when the blue confetti comes down or however they reveal it, I'm supposed to go, it's a boy. Oh my gosh. I had no idea. It's a huge surprise. It's so exciting. No, it's really not that awesome or amazing. It was a 50-50 chance and it ended up being a boy. Great. Good for you. So I don't understand that. Um, the gender reveal party is to me, silly, but, uh, we did find out the gender beforehand. We do, we do, we do find out the gender beforehand. Um, and I also don't understand not wanting to know the gender before. It's fine if people don't want to know. It can be fun to get that surprise, I guess, when the baby is born, but your child in the womb is your child, right? It's, it's, whether it's your son or daughter, it's your son or daughter. Um, and it doesn't become your child at birth. So why wouldn't you want to know what gender your child is in the womb? I mean, you might as well say, I don't want to know what the gender of the child is for the first year. No, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I want to be surprised on the first birthday. Why? Of course, there are parents who basically do that now, or they say, oh, no, because the child's going to choose their own gender. But putting those wackos to the side, um, yeah, I, uh, so I, I can understand one. Anyway, look, people do it however they want. It's, there is no right or wrong answer. But for me, um, it just seems to me that that's my kid, and I'd like to know everything I can about them right now. Why, why wait? Um, all right, from Catherine says, uh, in a handful of relationships I, uh, I've known that ended in divorce all included adultery, but only one involved the husband cheating on his wife. The rest were wives cheating on husbands. In most cases, the wife was career-driven, and in all but one um, there were kids involved. 
This eats at me significantly, especially since one of the cheating wives was my own career-obsessed mother. Why is it that women seem to cheat so much in relationships? And why do they always claim victim when they've been caught? Well, I don't know if women cheat more or men cheat more. I don't know if, I, I would suspect it's probably about even. It's a kind of a human failing that I think stretches across both genders. But I don't know what the stats say on that. A couple of observations. It's, it's no surprise that cheaters claim victimhood status. Um, someone with a victim mentality is someone who is self-absorbed, right? Uh, they're always the victim because everything's about them. Everything is a conspiracy about them. And they feel like they're entitled to be happy and satisfied all the time. And whoever they happen to be around, whoever's in their life, whoever is in their orbit, well, the job, the primary job of those people is to make them happy. Um, and especially in a marriage. These self-absorbed people think that my spouse's sole purpose in life is to make me happy. That's it. They have no other function. It's all about me. And so somebody with that mentality, it's no surprise that they would then go cheat and feel entitled to do so. Because if their spouse isn't making them happy, then they think, well, uh, I, I have a right to go and be happy somewhere else because this is all about me and my happiness is the most important thing in the universe. And then they can also feel like they've been victimized at the same time because they can say to their spouse, well, how dare you get mad at me? You didn't make me happy. This is your fault. So that's where that comes from. And, and it's also no surprise that career-obsessed people cheat, men or women, um, because, of course, there's nothing wrong with caring about your career. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But if your career is the only thing you care about, well, that's just another way of saying that you are the only thing you care about because your career is mostly about you and your own advancement, your own success. And so if that becomes the, the, the focal point of your life, then your marriage is going to take a back seat. It's going to have a secondary status. And if your marriage has a secondary status, then uh, if your marriage is secondary and you're spending all day focused on something that has nothing to do with your marriage, well, then that's... At that point, if you stay with that mentality, it's, it's almost a certainty that you'll cheat eventually. Um, all right, we got to wrap things up here. And, uh, well, I'll read this one. It says, uh, no name provided. It says, I'm a big fan of your show. I'm a Christian and conservative as well. I recently got admitted to Harvard Law School. I want to thank you for being part of the motivation and installation of faith that helped me get Get here, I was a poor black kid from the projects. Listening to you taught me what it was to be a man and achieve. From sleeping in the back of the 2003 Ford Focus to getting a job and getting my S together. Thank you, friend. I can't ever let you know how much you've changed my life. There were days when I didn't even want to live, ashamed and embarrassed. Something about listening to your show this past year made it worth it. Never stop what you're doing. I hope one day I can have a show like yours and impact people in a similar way. Uh, God bless, brother. Wow. Well, that's... I am blown away. Um... Thank you for that. Thank you for that, uh, for that, for that feedback. And also, um, I feel like I don't deserve any credit at all, though, because you're sleeping in the back of a car. You're starting with nothing. You're achieving. You're not complaining. You're not making yourself a victim. Um, you've taken your life into your own hands and climbing your way 
to success. I mean, that, that is all, just, just to be clear, that is 100% totally you, but whatever small little tiny role I could play in motivating you, I'm, I'm grateful for that role. So thank you for that. All right, uh, we'll end on that sappy note. Thanks everybody for watching. Thanks for listening. Godspeed. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, President Trump declares executive privilege over the unredacted Mueller report and Democrats escalate impeachment talk. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show.